Okay, everybody, welcome to a single tree podcast. This is episode number 30. We have Jenny Helms back with us today. We liked her so much, we invited her back again, and we're going to talk more today about our relationship with food and eating disorders uh, specifically. So, welcome back, Jenny. I'm glad to be back. We're glad you're here yeah. again. And uh, you did such a great job last time. We just decided that we would be lazy today and let you talk some more. <laughs> that is more fun for us. And sounds, uh, sounds good as long as I get to pick your brains as well. Okay, pretty interesting for everyone else out there too. We got some good feedback about the last podcast, um, and it was awesome to hear about your own story, your own journey, and and uh, the way that you help uh, people through um, shame and work with them on shame resilience and their relationship with their bodies. Um, today we'll talk a little bit more about our relationship with food and I think uh, as we were talking earlier um, all of us have a relationship with food interestingly enough. <laughs> Many of us don't think about it at all mm -hmm. um, but uh, you work a lot with people on um, just problematic kind of um, relationships with food uh, in different ways and we'll mm -hmm. talk about those specific ways that that manifests itself um, but uh, I think everybody you know might struggle at different times with um, different issues regarding food whether it's uh, overeating or there's binge eating disorder um, or even restricting their uh, food intake at times um, this episode's not just for people with eating disorders or who are interested in that but um, for all of us um, because I think it's important for us to have a healthy relationship with food so uh, it would be great for us just to hear kind of about the different kinds of eating disorders um, and how and I, I realize there's a lot to that um, <laughs> but just how um, the different eating disorders um, represent uh, people's different kinds of relationship different kinds of relationships with food um, and then we'll just talk about how you know how how to approach that um, maybe some of the treatment options and stuff like that and uh, what you can do about your relationship with food does that sound good <laughs> that sounds good sounds good to everybody <laughs> sounds good to me okay so tell us All just right. briefly I mean just the maybe the, the brief version about um, the different kinds of eating disorders and uh, people's relationships with food yeah, so there are several different types that we recognize in the DSM-5. And those are, again, kind of like you said, the extremes. And the way that I see it is if you're looking at, you know, a straight line, it's like on one end would be more of your binge eating, um, overeating, that sort of thing. And then the other end would be more restrictive. Um, and then maybe with bulimia, it's kind of a oscillation between the two. So I see it more like a pendulum where healthy eating is going to fall more in the middle of moderation, mm -hmm. kind of like how you'd see that with, you know, other behaviors too and other, th other areas that we talk about in mental health. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people struggle maybe on the fringes of one or the other, but there's a smaller portion of the population that's actually going to cross over and actually have an eating disorder. And so many people are what we call vulnerable to having eating disorders. 
And there's different reasons as to why they may never cross over into using that specific, what I would call even strategy for dealing with trauma, um, hard to manage emotions, personality types, all those different things. So, so yeah, in a healthy relationship with food, it's basically being able to have a moderate relationship with it where you're not obsessing over it throughout the day. You're not trying to control it too much, but you also have some boundaries kind of like in life. Like it's like, you're not just completely going by the seat of your pants. You have some structure, some boundaries, but there's also flexibility. Like when there's a birthday party, you're going to have cake and, you know, enjoy that and really, you know, focus on the true meaning of it, which is connecting with other humans versus obsessing over, okay, what am I eating right now? Um, but I think having some boundaries too is, is helpful in the sense that, you know, it's important that we take good care of our bodies and that we're feeding it mostly nutrient-dense foods and we're feeding it regularly. So that sort of thing is important, but, you know, it's having that flexibility to have, you know, more emotionally charged foods and variety and, yeah, being able to feed ourselves when we have cravings for things too. What's an emotionally charged food? <laughs> well... It's tough because I think people are drawn to different foods from like a physiological standpoint for different reasons. So when I say emotionally charged food with the eating disorder population could typically be something that's high fat or high sugar. Um, bacon. Bacon. <laughs> bacon is awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just depends on the person and what kind of association they've put with that food, right? Because okay. just depending on what information they're looking at, they may associate a food with being bad or not bad. Like, you know, when people were in the super low fat craze, you know, bacon would have been something that was like a fear food for some people. But now with like, Mm. you know, the, the keto stuff that I'm not a super big fan of, I'll just be honest. Um, you know, people are like, bacon is great. (laughs) And so, um, so it really just depends on the way that you are associating that food with either being good or bad, depending on the information you're getting. So it could be a positive or negative emotion and it could be different for different people. Yes. Okay. Well, and physiologically too, we, I mean, it's tough because they say you can't say that sugar is addictive, but we do know that physiologically we are. Like if you have too much sugar, you will have this pattern of going back to it because it does trigger dopamine and all the things that, you know, you would get in your brain those chemicals if you were to have a drug as well so there's there's that piece too where that can be emotionally charged for people because they're specifically reaching for sugar to deal with certain emotions because Mm -hmm. it's effective Mm -hmm. so um when you were talking talking about kind of having a restrictive relationship with food that's uh anorexia Mm -hmm. right and tell us a few of the characteristics of that just so people know what we're talking about and then we can talk about the other disorders. Yeah, so anorexia is going to be restricting your food intake. It's also going to be, uh, well, typically some of the features would be, you know, body checking, mirror checking, weight checking, trying to go towards losing weight and being fearful of gaining weight or being obsessed with staying a certain weight that's under what is a healthy body weight for that person. Um, it's really tough in our field too because. It used to be that we did that based on BMI. Like if you had a lower BMI, you'd be diagnosed with anorexia, but we're also seeing that people with higher BMIs are having the exact same features, the same psychological issues, and even the same physiological issues, 
but at higher weights. So we're learning that it's not all about weights and that somebody could be struggling with anorexia, but not be what people call that, like, you know, what they typically would think of when they think of anorexia. They may not look like what we think of when we think of someone with anorexia. Yes. Okay. Yep. But they could still be starving their brain, mm -hmm. their organs, and all of those other things. Big misconception. Yes, it's a big one. It's a huge one. And it's, I mean, I say that because, unfortunately, some people aren't getting treatment because of that, or yeah. they're not taking their illness seriously because they're like, I don't look this way. And it's still very, very serious. Yeah, so. still very unhealthy. Yes. Well, and psychologically, I mean, mm -hmm. obviously the physiological, the the physical component is important in, in these disorders because, you know, there is a high rate of death, unfortunately. Well, mm -hmm. I guess high would be 10% for anorexia. Um, mm -hmm. So we take it very seriously. However, when people only look at that lens, I feel like they're missing so much of it because a huge part of it is how much it psychologically destroys people's lives because they spend all their life obsessing over food and organizing their life around how they're going to diet or restrict their diet. And so that to me is also super important. And I don't think people recognize how detrimental that is in their lives. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, with anorexia too, you could potentially over-exercise with that um, mm -hmm. and just be limiting your calories severely. So in my own experience of it, I didn't realize that that's what I was struggling with because I thought that like you were supposed to be like basically not eating, but I was still eating. Mm -hmm. And what I was doing was I was just severely restricting my calories and then working out on top of that. And with the combination of the two, mm -hmm. um, that caused me to lose a lot of weight. And then when I wasn't willing to put it back on, they're like, okay, this is anorexia. Mm -hmm. So that makes any sense. It does. It, uh, and with uh, bulimia, there's the binging part of it, yes. which is not present in anorexia. Yes. Right? And so there's also the purging type of anorexia where you could be eating mm -hmm. normal to smaller meals. Um, but typically there is a restricting component with it too. And you're purging on top of that mm -hmm. or you're using laxatives or diuretics. So, okay. yeah. So <laughs> then talk about... Uh, Binging disorder, that's on the other end of the spectrum that you were talking about or the line that you were talking about. And then um, then we can talk about bulimia. Yeah, so binge eating disorder is when you are eating large amount of foods. So what would not be normal for like a typical outing that you'd have with your friends where, I mean, all of us, we're going to overeat from time to time or like eat large meals together and that's completely normal. But it would look like that times two or five or even larger than that. So it's mm -hmm. it's an excess of calories that you wouldn't see people eating in a similar kind of environment. Um, mm -hmm. And typically, and not all the time, but typically it is more private. So people will notice that they isolate themselves when they are eating these large amount of foods, whether they're doing it at home when nobody's watching in their car. Um, or in a closet even at home because they don't want anybody to know. Mm -hmm. And usually they hide food or they'll find themselves going to multiple fast food restaurants within a short amount of time. And I guess that's another important piece. So it'd be eating a large amount of food in a short amount of time. Um, mm -hmm. Three or four pizzas in like an hour or two would be a good kind mm -hmm. of example. Um, 
But even like, I mean, I think overeating, it's tough because people could struggle with overeating and it be something similar to that, but not quite to that extreme. Binge eating disorder is the more extreme of overeating. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, many of us can struggle with overeating. And mm -hmm. yeah, so this is just more to the extreme. It's the opposite of the restrict restricting your diet or your food intake. Um, and there's kind of, you were talking about a loss of control with um, binge eating. Yes. And yeah. I would say too, like the other pieces, you're like, you're physiologically probably feeling um, pretty sick. Like you're eating past what you physiologically even feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, obviously over time, your stomach will expand, but it would be, you know, specifically eating past your hunger cues. Yeah. So it's not, it's not just seeking like the reward or the comfort that um, comes from eating. It's mm -hmm going past that point to a point where you're you're actually maybe like harming yourself or punishing yourself or get into the point where it's a it's a bad feeling and not not a good feeling from eating yes okay. yeah okay and then uh bulimia would be you said oscillating between kind of the two extremes there yes typically okay. um what you'll see with bulimia is you have the binge eating and then either the purging to compensate or you could exercise to compensate or you could go a few days without eating a lot of food. Um, what it typically looks like is somebody saying, okay, I'm only gonna have fruit for the next three days. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they go on a binge and they eat a ton of, of food and different types of foods. And then they'll um, either purge that or if they don't, they'll you know kind of set this weird rule for themselves again, like I'm only gonna have fruit again for another three days and their attempts to compensate mm -hmm. for what they ate. So there's this compensatory piece where it's not just binging and then starting your next day over normal, it's binging and then trying to make up for it either through purging, exercising, or um, restricting your diet severely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's that uh, swing of the pendulum that happens with bulimia for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's one more disorder, I think, uh, that's in the DSM-5. So there's avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is typically in younger kids, but that's not to say that it wouldn't exhibit in teens or older adults either. Um, but it's where somebody has restrictions in the foods that they eat, but they tend to be based on texture or color or other features, and it's not tied to their body image. There's not as much um, weight checking typically outside of them maybe being fascinated by the weight weight that they're losing, but it's not like, hey, I want to lose weight. Um, and so, yeah, so the few cases that I've heard of, and this isn't necessarily an area that I specialize in specifically, like ARFID is something I'm still growing and learning more about, um, have been induced by a trauma from like surgery or choking or something like that where all of a sudden that person decided, hey, I'm not going to eat certain foods because they had a traumatic experience with it or they have this fear associated with swallowing it, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but they'll still, I mean, it's still a problem because, you know, especially for kids, they're growing and then they're not getting all the nutrients they need and they're really fearful of foods, but it's not tied to their body image. It's not tied to them wanting to actually lose weight. Mm -hmm. 
there's just these different kinds of relationships with food that we can have and, and sometimes they can be problematic. And then there's the issue of, of body image, which is usually present, but not always with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, people, there's a misconception too, that that's always um, a concern, mm-hmm. but how do you see that interacting the body image issues with um, the different eating disorders? I'd say they're pretty present in all of them, but you're right, they do exhibit a little bit differently based on what I understand about it. Um, With anorexia, there's that intense fear of weight gain. Arguably, I'd say you see the same thing with bulimia as well, and that's why they're going through such extreme behaviors to compensate for the foods that they do eat. However, I have seen a few cases of anorexia where like they basically met criteria for everything but body image and the thing that really they were they were more um, struggling with the control piece of it. So it was they had more of an obsessive control piece with the anorexia than the actual body image. But that's not common. So I just I do, I do want to throw that out there. Okay. Um, but yeah, in bulimia, I see a lot of body image issues, too. Binge eating disorder, there's definitely still that, um, I think there's still a sense of struggle with loving and accepting their bodies, but it's not, it's a little different in the sense that there's there's a part of them that can like find parts of themselves that are um, beautiful or like, you know, maybe they like features of their face. They may not like their weight typically. They typically still struggle with their weight, but they can find other parts of their bodies typically that they do like. Whereas, you know, I don't see as much grace usually from people who struggle with anorexia or bulimia. Now, that's not any science <laughs> by any means, but that's just been my observation. trends, yeah. Yeah, the trends. And um, yeah, but I think across across all of them, they struggle with body image and you know I think a lot of humans struggle with body image so it's difficult it's just like kind of enhanced in these populations you know it's like it's like they'll take something that I think a lot of humans struggle with and they turn it up to 100 right versus it being like a one Mm. or a two yeah that's a good way to say it that's that's one of the things I'm interested in is that like the phenomenology behind you know how this these behaviors arise in in others versus you know some of us struggle with this more than others I mean can you speak to why or what your perspective is on how this phenomenon arises in some rather than others yeah so um, like I was saying before I think a lot of us are vulnerable to all these things or like struggling with having a healthy relationship with food or our bodies And then with eating disorders, I like to describe it as a cake, which is kind of funny to the families that I work with because, you know, we're talking about eating disorders. Um, And I say that, you know, all of the different ingredients have to come together, all the different parts. So like the flour and the sugar and the milk are different pieces, like family dynamics might be the flour, Uh, media influence and maybe comments from family and friends is another piece of it. having a certain personality subtype or like a tendency to have a certain personality is another piece. And then when you combine them all together, 
and then bake it in the right environment at the right temperature, that will create the actual you know, crossover into being an eating disorder. And so the right environment could be like a triggering event or a trauma. Um, it's not always a very distinct trauma. Um, so for instance, in my case, like it was more about moving and some other things that were kind of stressful, but that event itself kind of triggered it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, so it's, it's a pretty dynamic kind of conglomeration of things that converge to really bring this kind of behavior about in some people. Yeah. And it's, it's part of what I try to explain to um, the family members and loved ones that are telling their person struggling, like, just eat, you know. And I, it's, it's really just a lack of understanding that they totally would if they could, but there's all these different factors feeding into it yes. that they don't quite, you know, see until <laughs> you lay it out that way. So it's not as, I mean, just like a lot of things um, in our lives that, that people struggle with it's not as easy as just changing your behavior Mm -hmm. or even being able to change your beliefs that you know because people know that you know they know sort of logically that you have to eat enough a a certain you know number of calories or or they might be able to come to that understanding right but that doesn't just knowing that doesn't mean you can just change your behavior Mm-hmm. If if you're um, struggling with an eating disorder, um, or that they shouldn't eat way too much food, they they might be able to come to that belief. But it's not as easy as just knowing that and then being able to um, coach your own behavior or even have some type of reward system or something like that for for changing your behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Do you feel like, um, since it's, it's, since it's a cake, you know, you have to have all the ingredients and then you have to have the, the right environment. Um, it's important to maybe address all of those things, um, when you're, when you're trying to help someone with an eating disorder, right? I mean, as many, as many things as possible, be able to, um, address those how do you go about addressing all of those things or what would be even the ideal like situation to be able to help someone who's struggling with an eating disorder? I think that's a tricky question to answer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, every situation and every person that I work with is different. I'm trying to think if I can make it more generic. Um, Because for me, it's very important that we either work with their family or we work on them working on their sense of self so they can function within their family. Mm-hmm. If we're just working individually with that, um, you know, the medical side of it typically has to be addressed first. So I would say that that's the most important part first. It's not the most important part overall, but it's the most imp- important part first so that they can have a brain that can even absorb therapy. I had a client that she would record our sessions because she couldn't remember things very well. And so she would listen to it throughout the week to kind of help her with that. But, you know, there are things like that where short-term memory, memory loss, um, lack of being able to use that prefrontal cortex and everything else. Like those are the things that your brain isn't going to spend a lot of energy on if you're not giving yourself enough 
food. So mm. we have to get that basic need met before outpatient work is going to be effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a huge piece of it, getting the family involved, working on, like I really love the groups because I think that that helps people work on connecting with other people and working on their shame and working on challenging belief systems like in a group setting. We can do that in therapy as well. I think that people can get to a place where they are what they call undiagnosable by just addressing certain features. Um, And that basically means that you're not actually acting out or doing any of the behaviors for a 60-day period. However, if they want full recovery, I do believe that they have to address most of it. So most of those different features, including body image, which is usually the last thing that people um, work through when they're going through the eating disorder process, mm-hmm. if that's part of their eating disorder. And do you help people with the eating part? I mean, do, with meal planning and like um, just, you know, specifically on their relationship with food? I work on the relationship with food in the sense of like trying to um, non demonize the foods that they've created as fear foods or like challenging them with certain things. However, when it comes to really meal planning and getting into the nitty gritty of that, I typically let that be what the dietitian or nutritionist works with. So when people work on recovering from their eating disorder, it's really important that they have a team. And that's also strategic in regards to letting that be kind of out of the therapy room so we can work on maybe the deeper stuff around the food versus spending the entire therapy session talking about calories, food, that sort of thing. Because some people, if you will let them, they will tell, they will because they're so obsessed with food, they will talk about food the entire session. And so um, it's kind of nice to be able to separate that out so you can have that be what the dietitian and nutritionist works with and then you can take it deeper you know, in the therapy setting mm-hmm. and say, okay, you can talk about that with your dietitian. Let's talk more about your fears around it or um, let's go deeper than that. Because mm-hmm. I'm not very interested in talking about calories or carbs or anything like that. The whole so session. then you'll work closely with a dietitian. Mm-hmm. Your role mainly is to kind of assess the unique situation, kind of globally see all of the ingredients and then kind of work towards identifying some of the core issues of surrounding the behavior Mm -hmm. and we talked a little bit about that before we started today just the issue of this felt sense of control and or safety is and just how that may arise in this kind of experience with eating and disorders. Mm-hmm. What's your experience with helping people navigate that, these issues of, of control and this kind of felt sense of powerlessness? Yeah. So I was just trying to think of an analogy in my head. I haven't used it yet, so we'll see how it goes. Um, I almost feel like sometimes the eating disorder is almost like what a religion might be to other people. And I don't mean to say that in a way that religions are bad, but it provides this like sense of power and safety and like 
there's certain rules and it's a way of organizing their life that makes sense when they have hard things happen to them or things where they weren't very powerful um, mm. or moments that they didn't have power happen to them and a sense of trauma um, and even just in the sense of like I hear a lot of divorce sparking eating disorders as well um, or being in a family of divorce so it can be this thing that people cling to especially the anorexia um, but bulimia too because they can create their rules around that as well and their structure around that as well um, where the, that sense of control and the rules that they create are just so um, safe for them. It's safe for them where they may have not felt safety in, in the world otherwise. So that they created this like sense of safety and control and this um, perceived sense of power where they felt powerless. And then with bulimia, you kind of see people oscillating back and forth between feeling a sense of, of being powerful and they're restricting or their compensatory behavior, but not feeling very powerful when they are engaging in binging. That's when they'll describe feeling out of control. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of shame around um, bulimia more so than, um, well, it's hard to say. It's not that there isn't shame in anorexia, but what I see is that with people who struggle with anorexia, they tend to be more proud of it in the sense that they don't want to like let it go. They feel powerful in it. Where I'll see people with bulimia or struggling with binge eating disorder who are like, I feel a lot of shame about this behavior. I want to get let go of this part of it, the binging part of it. Um, that they want to get rid of. They don't typically take a lot of pride or power in that. It's that sense of powerlessness. So I don't know if that answered your Question, but. Sure, sure. Yeah. I'd love to hear you talk about just kind of like a, a healthy relationship with control mm -hmm. and then even like a healthy relationship with food. Yeah. Well, I see it a lot like how I'd see even, you know, parents maybe even trying to have a sense of power and control over their children mm -hmm. or l lack of boundaries completely. Um, I see that in the way that we relate to ourselves, like in general, and then how we relate to food in the sense that, you know, if you are so overly rigid and controlled and you never give yourself any sort of grace, like in the sense that you, you know, there is orthorexia as well that is like being obsessed with being healthy even. So even the obsession over being healthy can be unhealthy. And, you know, it's good. I think for all of us, just like with parenting, it's good to have some structure, especially, you know, um, when kids are really young, like it's good to have some structure, but then it's like, it's also good to have flexibility and to be able to bend the rules. And, you know, when you're talking about even like reward and punishment, like when a kid messes up, you don't want to have a really crazy punishment that doesn't fit the crime, which is kind of what I feel can happen sometimes with you know, bulimia or other eating disorders where it's like, I did this thing and now I'm going to go to like this extreme and punish my, myself. And so I almost see it as like a, like a parenting relationship for lack of a better metaphor, where when you have a healthy relationship with food, you're going to have some boundaries. Um, however, it's flexible and it's not based on a place of fear or trying to be societally something for, you know, 
a different reason. It's based on being more true to yourself and true to like what physiologically feels good to you, not just on like a fad diet or um, trying to be a certain weight because you're tying that to success or whatever else you may be tying that to, mm-hmm. you know, um, or lovability. So, yeah. So I think it's it's about it's kind of hard to describe without like, I'm like, I wish I could give like a concrete example, but you know, like even for myself, like I eat pretty healthfully. I can't have gluten because it makes me sick. And so that's kind of a food that I don't really ever have unless I have it on accident. Um, But for the most part, I eat pretty healthfully and eat whole foods, but I'm also like adding in like the things that I need for energy. So like I add in stuff all the time and you know, if I'm out, I'll eat what's there. I'm not going to change um, what I'm going to eat or like try to, you know, miss out on that, especially like homemade stuff, you know, you're going to engage in that. So I don't know. I I just see it as balance with that. Mm -hmm. And, um, like eventually for people, I mean, in the beginning, like if you are struggling with an eating disorder, intuitive eating is, it's, it's just not effective because their hunger signals are completely off. And even the idea of it, they'd probably laugh at you. Um, but eventually being in a space where you can just kind of eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full and just honor that relationship with your body and trust your body again is really big because I feel like there's like, like this lack of trust and feeling betrayed by the body for a lot of people who struggle with eating disorders. So so that's a whole other kind of realm you have to walk them through is being able to to trust themselves to make good, balanced decisions mm-hmm. yeah with their bodies and I, I I will say I see it a lot with their emotions too a lot of people don't trust their emotions and so part of the way that they're dealing with that is they're engaging in the eating disorder mm-hmm. and so yeah it's a total trust of like I can trust the emotions that I didn't trust or maybe have tried to like kind of um, control with the eating disorder and I can trust that I can have these foods and have this body and that I'm okay in a healthy body. To helping them find a new orientation to just their emotional world and some of these core aspects like powerlessness and control mm-hmm. and helping them find just a healthier kind of orientation to all of these, these things. Mm-hmm. So the intuitive eating is... Uh, paying attention to how your body feels when Mm -hmm. you feel hungry it's time to eat obviously um and then being able to stop when you feel full which is kind of your body's way of telling you that you've had enough or you know um you've gotten the nutrients you need right and uh so with eating disorders it sounds like that may be a problem just just being aware of those signals in your body the body awareness is there a way that you help people to regain that specifically, that that body awareness? Um, yeah, well, it's they have to be following a meal plan with a dietitian, honestly, for a while before they mm-hmm. get to the place where we get to have a little bit more mm-hmm. um, growth and leniency with that, mm-hmm. where we could say, okay, we just want you to eat until you feel like you're full. Um, and when you're hungry, you know, they do things like scales where they kind of help people, you know, 
tie it to like a one to 10 scale to help them get more in touch with that hunger piece. Um, but the other thing too is, is especially with anorexia, getting people to trust that their hunger is a good thing and not a bad thing that they're just trying to like ignore essentially. And so, because some people will tell you that they're never hungry and some, for some people that's, that's true because that signals no longer going because of the way that they've been treating their body. And for some people they tell you that, but that's not true. They just ignore it and they, um, yeah, or maybe they'll call it anxiety or something different because they don't want to be hungry. And so it gets a little tricky or for people with binge eating disorder on the other end, it's really hard for them to get in touch with fullness Hmm. and feeling a sense of fullness. And like they don't have to keep going and keep going. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What would you say to someone who's really struggling with, um, like their their body image, or how do you specifically work on that piece of it? We've been talking about a lot about the relationship with food, but um, how do you work with people who are struggling with that? Well, I would first tell them welcome to being human Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because yeah I think we all do it in different ways and in different levels but the the big piece I think for a lot of people is working on the narratives they attach to what their body looks like or how they understand um, how culture talks about what bodies are supposed to look like because a lot of people, if they're going through recovery and they're really working towards not struggling with their body image so much, they have to work on being counterculture in a lot of ways where they are not going to glorify certain body types or certain diet fads. And they're going to, they're not going to be, they're basically having to say, I'm going to have a different opinion than a lot of the people around me. And that's really hard to do, especially for my teens, because, you know, they're huge into connecting and making friends and wanting to be accepted. Um, but yeah, them really working on body image means that they're going to be different than a lot of other people. And so working on figuring out what narratives are culture and what narratives are me, like what parts are actually what I think um, from a healthy place and which ones are just what I've been told based on social media and culture and, you know, looking at their Instagram accounts, they have a lot of things they follow that, you know, whether, whether we like to admit it or not, we're all very much influenced by the things that we are absorbing every day. Um, and even if we can look at something and know that it's fake, the research shows that it's still impacting us subconsciously. And so, we do some social media cleanses just to kind of like help them, you know, or what I first try to convince them of is just to add some different body types into there, like, or just something a little bit different because at first they're like, well, I'm not going to stop following this person. I'm like, okay, great. You've got to add in at least some other stuff. And then we work to slowly get them into a space where they're not just looking at like these fitness models or, you know, unfortunately there's some pro anorexia stuff. Um, or people if they follow certain like uh, like ballerinas I know can be pretty triggering for some people um, but yeah just helping them to not be exposed to as much of that even though regardless they're going to be 
you know, so they still need to work on building that sense of resilience to that. You're talking about the culture. What do you think about just cultural and societal awareness of eating disorders? You mean like our culture in America? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that unfortunately a lot of people label it as a phase if somebody is struggling with something. So when people come in, it's typically after a year or so of them engaging in something or they almost have to do something to an extreme before they come in versus noticing it from an earlier time. Like I, I hear a lot of people talking about, well, everybody does that. So it, it's tough because like in a sense, <clears throat> there's some truth that we all struggle with eating stuff from time to time or, you know, we have eating issues in our culture. So I think that people will label it as um, a phase or normal and will discredit that it could actually be a severe issue for a person. Um, I also think that there's just the lack of education because we don't necessarily get, you know, a talk about eating disorders or even like having a healthy relationship with food. We don't talk about that in our schools. Um, or at least for me, like when I was going through school, we talked about it briefly, but it was like super brief, very extreme. And yeah, I had no idea I had an eating disorder until somebody literally sat me down and was like, you have an eating disorder. So, yeah. um, so it's, it's tough because I don't think that people have an awareness all the time of what it really is or what it looks like. Or they're tying it to like, hey, I have to look like a super thin, um, emaciated person to have an eating disorder. And so that's one of the biggest misconceptions that I think keeps people from getting treatment is they talk about not looking sick enough. Mm. So that's really tough. It seems a little bit different than like, you know, when people are suffering from depression or anxiety, you know, they have often a complaint about that and, and would seek out treatment. And sure there's some stigma attached to that and some people would be reluctant because they don't want to believe that they have that but with eating disorders it seems like um, more often than not it's it's um, there's not the realization that I have a problem are there things are there ways that people like if if um, you know if people's families or you know they know people who might be struggling they think might be struggling with an eating disorder um, ways that they could just be aware of that um, not so that they could confront them about it necessarily mm -hmm. but that they could be sensitive to it and then and then supportive mm. like ways that they might see it in another person yeah. mm -hmm. I'd say the biggest thing I'd look into is how um, how a person's mood might change around food or meal times mm -hmm. because typically with eating disorders you'll see people who are one way outside of their interactions with food and then it shifts once food is involved and so if you notice a shift in how they're emoting about it whether it's they're more anxious or angry or on edge or even if they're like over the top like happy about it like it's just an emotional shift about mm -hmm. food the other thing is noticing isol like the isolating behavior so if you start to observe that somebody is not having food around other people, then that's another big red flag because one of the things is 
for a lot of people, they struggle to eat around people because then that might inter interfere with their rituals, what they're doing, whether it's you know restricting or binging or the combination. And so you'll notice that they don't um, go to as many outings with food involved or they won't, they'll say, oh, I ate before I came, that sort of thing. So if they're not engaging in meals with people, um, you know, weight shifting in either direction significantly, like as much as I don't want that to be the number one thing you look at, that is part of it for some people. And I think a lot of the people too already have kind of this, um, they struggle to speak for themselves or have a high sense of self-worth. I see that very commonly. So if, if they kind of have a person personality type already that they struggle with self-esteem or perfectionism or feeling like they can speak for themselves, then that would be just like another kind of red flag that I would wrap around into that. Um, but it is really tough because a lot of people can become very good at camouflaging it. Right. And what is, uh, if you did... Um know someone you know who maybe was um, struggling with an eating disorder or just maybe a better question is um, what does someone with an eating disorder maybe need from someone who cares about them I would say not another person trying to control or trying to throw control into the mix um, now, if they're a little kid and you can control them, sometimes you need to do that in the sense of just refeeding them. However, I've seen so many people try to control the disorder and that kind of making it even worse um, because you trying to control it or having a ton of anxiety about it creates this dynamic where there's just a lot of pressure on that person and one of the functions can be even to like rebel against that. And so it kind of actually keeps the eating disorder in place even more. So yeah, the biggest thing that I'll see is like people really trying to control it because they're scared. And I get that because you, it's really scary to see a loved one in pain and struggling. But I think having a person more so be able to listen and just be there and say, look, if this is where you're at right now, like we're going to get you in the treatment that you need to get into, or, you know, sometimes you have to be firm about getting them inpatient if that's what they need. However, in that process, trying to let it be theirs and, and like being a support for them that they can go to when they're struggling versus trying to control the disorder itself. Yeah. yeah. And letting it like not, not making mealtimes a big deal, like in the sense that you're just gonna like, you know, model good behaviors of just eating variety and not stressing about meals and not stressing about what they're eating or not eating, because again, that can just Play into that dynamic of power and control. Yeah, that's great. If there's anything else that you could say about just having a healthy relationship with food, that that would be great. Um, I think it's really interesting. It seems like you know part of what you're saying about having a healthy relationship with food is that it's okay to eat because it feels good. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there's sort of this phenomenon of um, comfort eating in our culture and it's all it's usually um, or you know eating your feelings or emotional eating um, and it's usually referred to as a negative thing I think um, mm -hmm. but kind of this idea that it's okay to eat because it feels good 
Yes. Um, and then on the other end of that, it's okay also to control your what you're eating, control your intake, um, ha have some level of control over uh, your diet and, and the variety of things that you eat. Um, you know, part of that being you don't just, you know, do whatever you want or do whatever <laughs> does feel good. You right. know what I mean? So I think that's a helpful, like, way to, to frame it up that is, you know, everything in moderation, right? But mm -hmm. um, that it's okay sometimes to eat because it feels good. Mm -hmm. And it's okay sometimes to keep some controls on your diet and, and what you eat. And, and just that just that balance there, those things kind of working together. Um, and there's no like maybe perfect diet. And part of that is because it's different for different people, right? Mm -hmm. you know, because of their physiology, but I think that's really helpful. Yeah. Just well, anything that like, I mean, if you're having to think about it too much or like, <laughs> again, organize your life around it or stress about it, I think at that point when you're taking your brain power away from um, creating, from being, from connecting, mm. and you're putting that into like food and exercise, then, you know, you're probably going in a wrong direction versus like yeah. it being just something that's like you think about a little bit but it's not taking up your week it's not taking up your day like for me I, I cook a bunch of food earlier in the week and then I just don't really think about it so much unless I just need to add things here and there which I usually do but yeah. um but yeah it's just it's not something that takes over my brain space like it used to and that's like what I hope for for my clients too is that they get their brains back in that way. Yeah, they can think about other things and be be productive in other areas of their life. And so, yeah, the the obsessing about food is kind of um, something to address. And a healthy relationship with food is not being a slave to it, or and you know even even your thoughts about food. So that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that you brought in that it was, it is about, you know, having a little bit of structure, but also like it is okay to eat food for emotional purposes. Cause you're right, I think it's gotten a bad rep that like we're only supposed to eat food for fuel and that's not, <laughs> <laughs> that's not very fun. Right. <laughs> but right. it's also not healthy, hey, no. you know, mentally long term to right. do that. Yeah. No, it tastes good. It feels good, especially yeah. if you're, you know, eating the right things or in the right amount and you know for you whatever that is right yeah. so yeah, yeah that's really helpful yeah what do you guys like eating <laughs> that we're talking oh, man. about <laughs> bacon is one of my favorite foods good bacon is a good one yeah that's for sure i love steak and potatoes which is funny because as yeah. a kid i did not like steak at all but as an adult like it's one of my favorite meals chicken, chicken. love chicken Mm -hmm. All things chicken. <laughs> I like chicken a lot. I find myself, uh, I think as I get older, like, um, and I'm 38, so uh, just like limiting a lot of like uh, high carb or high sugar stuff because um, I can, if I eat something really high in sugar or drink like pop, mm -hmm. which is really high in sugar, um, mm -hmm. I can totally like feel the difference in my body in my head and my ability to think makes me sleepy oh really um, huh. 
So you yeah. get like yeah. the sugar crash. Yeah, basically. totally. <laughs> totally. So I don't try not to drink pop during the day. Mm. Um, so yeah, just like focusing on proteins and, you know, vegetables and fruit and stuff like that just makes me feel better. Yeah. Well, that's part of intuitive eating too. Cause like, uh, you know, if I go on vacation, usually I'm going to eat out like all of my meals and after about five days, I definitely, yeah. my body starts to feel it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like a yeah. very smart wisdom of our body saying, Hey, like let's have some home cooked meals or some add some veggies to that or something because we need those nutrients genuinely as, as Mm -hmm. physical creatures. Um, and yeah, and I, yeah, having to go through all the issues with gluten, I think that helped me have a more balanced perspective with food because Mm -hmm. food was actually making me sick. Mm -hmm. And I think if you never have that experience, um, sometimes you don't think about it until those sorts of things happen. Right. So, yeah, I always feel like when I get off of vacation or like a holidays or something like that have like a cleanse (laughs) or something yeah drink a bunch of water (laughs) eat a bunch of vegetables (laughs) yeah take it yeah Yeah. just add some nutrients in back in yeah Mm -hmm. you can totally feel it and i think that's a good practice for for people to start paying attention to how their body feels Mm -hmm. all the time not just when they eat Mm -hmm. but um you know typically if you get you know, if you're, if you're, you know, kind of get any kind of eating disorder that you would have under control, um, and you get into sort of a well-regulated diet that's not over-controlled, um, that you're just going to start feeling better, mm-hmm. healthier, like more emotionally even and, um, able to think and be creative, you know, sort of your cognitive, um, functioning is going to be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And you're just going to have, I mean, it's going to, you know, create sort of the, the right chemicals being released in your brain and, and in your body, mm-hmm. you know, and you're just going to feel better. Yeah. You know? So like you said, if it's, if you're, you know, if you do have an eating disorder, it's probably likely that you need to be treated medically. But um, yeah, I mean, the goal, the goal would be to get to be able to do intuitive eating where you're not thinking overthinking and not thinking too much about it but you're able to um, eat because it feels good eat because you're hungry um, stop eating when you feel good because on the <laughs> other end of that if you're eating too much that you know that mm-hmm. can feel bad yeah um, well I'm yeah. dialing into that too right like mm-hmm. I think a lot of people with soda I would say yeah. and I'm not trying to like demonize any food so like if you have it every now and then totally fine yeah um, but I think a lot of people like I mean, for myself, I don't because it doesn't make me feel good. And I had turned that off for so many years where, like, I felt like I was just completely disconnected from my body in different ways. Um, And the more connected I've become to my bodies and even, like, you know, tying that back into mental health emotions, the more I've been able to, like, let myself feel emotion in my body. Mm -hmm. um, I've been able to kind of feel and be aware of those things where, yeah, like, I just have better energy levels better brain capacity when I'm not drinking soda and I used to drink like a liter of coke zero every day and that was not yeah so great so I thought that was normal like I thought brain fog and like crashing all well because I'd have to keep drinking the soda to like (laughs) keep on like keep on getting myself back into a space (laughs) where I was functioning and then I'd crash again so Uh 
Yeah, I thought that was like normal life. You're, yeah, you are your habits. I mean, you, you just, you know, when you've eaten a certain way for your whole <laughs> life, you know, if that's if that's what you did when you were a kid and, and you've never known anything different than that, you just feel like it's how you norm. feel is mm-hmm. normal, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, yeah, changing some of those habits can be good. Educating yourself about what's healthy, especially for you, because, you know, what's healthy for one person is not healthy for another person, um, working with a dietitian, working with your doctor, just educating yourself and, um, yeah. I might provide an asterisk to that just because (laughs) based on, based on the time that I've worked with, like wanting, being interested in like food and how it impacts our bodies, there's so much information out there that I feel like Mm -hmm you know, I'd be like, yes, go educate yourself. But there's so much that it can be really Mm. overwhelming and there's a lot of bad information. And so I think like the general rule that I say for people, what stood the test of time in the research has just been eating whole foods and like variety. So like make sure you have variety in your diet, make sure you're eating things that come out of the ground and from like animals versus, you know, just things that come from a lab and you're doing pretty good like that's like the 80 percent okay you know that gets you there whereas like i think sometimes people get so caught up in like the minutia and now obviously if you have an autoimmune issue or something else or another compelling reason to have to drastically change your diet like i do want to honor that because you know i have people in my family even that have to follow certain protocols um however like yeah i'd say go educate yourself but i've I've heard bad things even from doctors and so oh, no okay. offense doctors yeah. out there, yeah. but I've heard them some give doctors, people right? some pretty <clears throat> bad advice. Um, and so that seeing that has made me a little bit more wary of saying, Hey, yeah, go ask mm-hmm. your doctor or go get, go get educated yourself. Cause half of what I do is honestly having to debunk these myths that people come in with about, yeah. you know, having to eat a certain way and yeah how certain things are yeah anyway are there some good resources that you could point people to as far as educating themselves in a unhealthy eating yeah we have you know you know you hmm. you're here at real life counseling um we have a dietitian mm-hmm. here at real life counseling um who can help educate people in a uh in a helpful way well it gets tough because i do have one that i like However, here's where it gets sticky in the eating disorder community. Um, some people would call me healthist for, you know, trying to kind of push people towards eating healthy. Mm-hmm. And so it gets a little sticky, but I will say, okay, so the one that I like, and obviously this isn't the end all be all, is it starts with food. And I'm trying to remember the author's name. It starts with food. They're the people who do the the whole 30 challenge but they actually kind of explain why it's important to just eat whole foods so it's not that i say hey like strictly adhere to this but like they have just some really good information and ways of looking at food Mm -hmm. for the average person who doesn't have disordered eating Mm -hmm. so i'll put that asterisk in there um but if you tend to be obsessive about stuff like that then that may not be a healthy resource for you so okay but yeah i like i like what they've done and how they wrote that book so Well, we appreciate what you're doing here to help those with eating disorders and 
um, yeah, reach out to us, everyone. If you, uh, if you have interest or have questions or if we can help in any way and, uh, yeah. Anything else you guys? Not for me. Thank you, you everyone. Thank, Thank you, you, Jenny. Thanks for listening. <laughs>